Welcome to Behind the White Coat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Malara, a first-year medical student. In this podcast, we listen to the stories of those underrepresented in medicine. Today's guest is fourth-year medical student Annie Huang. Annie was born and raised in Jersey City to multi-ethnic immigrant parents from Vietnam, both of whom were children of American soldiers during the Vietnam War and came to the U.S. under the Amerasian Homecoming Act. Annie received her bachelor's degree in molecular cell biology at Yale with a full rights scholarship. She is currently on a five-year track to receive her MD from the University of California, San Francisco, and her master's of public health from Harvard. You're the first one in your family to even go to school, period, right? Like just kindergarten. Can we just start from that? Like what was education for you as a young child and what was it like growing up? Um, yeah, wow, we're going, we're going way back, huh? Like just like at the beginning. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess just like some background, like my parents are, um, are immigrants. They came here, my mom basically came here pregnant with me. And, um, and I'm originally, I'm, my, I was born and raised in Jersey, um, Jersey City. And so East Coast, yay. <laughs> And, um, yeah, so my parents never went to, never went to school. They were both kids of a American soldiers from the Vietnam War. So, you know, my grandmothers are from Vietnam, but my grandfathers are American soldiers who, because the war had ended, um, in 75, um, in Vietnam, they basically left and my grandmothers had to raise their children as single mothers in kind of post-war communist Vietnam. And, um, and as a result, they were kind of at the, you know, my family was basically at the bottom of society. Can you imagine being a single mother, raising their kids and being, uh, mixed children for that matter of what was deemed to be as the enemy. Um, and so my parents grew up in very austere, conditions, they were basically denied human rights, essentially. They were denied a right to their to an education because of who they were, what they represented, how they looked. You know, my dad basically, you know, is uh, like half black, half Hispanic mix. Um, and my mom is like half white. And they look very, very um, uh, like those respective counterparts. And so as a result, um, that, that's kind of was their life and that's the conditions they grew up in. And, and they had to uh, work at a very early age to help support, obviously, my grandmothers in order to survive. Um, and so as a result, they never went to school. I think they, because of that. Um, yeah. And so um, when I started my education, if we're going back to kindergarten, then I mean, I, I mean, I started, you know, in public school, I think my parents, like, you know, they came here, like, they didn't speak a word of English whatsoever. Like, they were just trying to make ends meet and find a job. And, you know, I grew up in like, really small, cramped, like, one bedroom apartments, like, kind of everyone just kind of live in the same space in more or less difficult neighborhoods. And uh, we were, we were just trying to make it work, essentially. So you mentioned the treatment of the Mary Asians, right, in Vietnam. Yeah. And so, you know, you told, you were saying that they were kind of treated at like the bottom of society. Mm. So what was it like for them coming here now? Like, did they, have they ever talked about maybe difference in treatment or has anything changed since they first moved here? Yeah. So I think, um, 
you know, my parents never really opened up about it really um, up until, you know, pretty now that I'm older and have more of a adult relationship with my parents, they've started to open up more of kind of like their perceptions and views of the disparities and the inequities that we experience. And so you're right, like as Amerasians, you know, they um, were basically, you know, they were called the children of dust, right? The, you know, in air quotes. And uh, that's how basically they were treated. My parents were luckily, lucky in the sense, um, and they still feel grateful to this day that they were, they were able to be raised there by their biological mothers. Most kids um, like them would actually be sold. They would be sold. They would, uh, they would be abandoned. A lot of them are in, you know, would just kind of live on the street or, you know, kind of live in the jungle or, or, or kind of live out with the more ethnic minorities. Um, and so my parents were, were lucky in the sense that both their mothers respective, respectively were, were able to raise them or, or made the very difficult decision to, to raise them. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, they were able to come here. My parents were not part of, you know, they didn't come here. They're not like the boat people. They didn't come here via the boats, you know, after the fall of Saigon. That's a very different demographic of people who came from Vietnam. They came because Congress had a conscience (laughs) and realized that, oh, there are thousands of kids that we kind of left behind that soldiers fathered at some point um, and left. And, and so politically, they, they changed that via the Amerasian Homecoming Act and because of just kind of a stroke of the pen. You know, my, my, my parents, you know, came from, and, and, and other people, their friends as well, you know, went from like children of dust, essentially, to like, basically, like the golden ticket to come to the US. And so at that point, um, they were viewed very differently in, 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 interestingly enough, in Vietnamese society. But coming here, you know, as um, they were immigrants, they came with, I think, legally as refugee status. When they came here, you know, they we had to start from the bottom, right? You didn't speak any English, and so you relied a lot on kind of people around you who spoke your language to help you out. If you look at my parents, you know, when they were young, you would see kind of like, a woman who looks pretty white and a man who looks pretty black. And so from an outside world, this was an interracial couple, but then you get super confused because they only speak Vietnamese. Um, and um, and I actually grew up in a community of just Amerasians. So my parents kind of like glommed with, you know, it was, you know, they came with people who looked like them essentially. So basically what they had to do before they came to the United States is that they had to do like a six month kind of like, education camp thing um, in the Philippines, essentially. They had to be in in the Philippines for six months before they were able to come to the U.S. And so they were able to live in a community of people, of couples, of young adults who look just like them or or have that same background. So I grew up in that community and I thought this was like a normal thing. Until, you know, you go to school, you go outside of that community, and then you realize that this, that this is something else, you know, um, when people start pointing it out to you. But I think my parents um, and, and my family, I think, experienced the same sort of uh, hardships and struggles as any immigrant family who basically came from nothing. My, because my parents were denied an education, even in their own country, uh, home home country, rather, or their mother country. Um, And because they were denied an education, they, 
they weren't even educated in their own language. You can only imagine the barrier to learning English and, and, and trying to, to get by here. And so that, that struggle was real. And so they didn't have a degree. They didn't have initials behind them, obviously. And so had to work low wage job jobs. And I, and like I alluded to, I mean, I lived in very, very small apartments kind of just growing up essentially. My mother to this day, she's a, she's a nail salon worker. She works in a nail salon, obviously not working right now because of COVID. And so that, that's been really hard for my, for my family. And my dad has done a bunch of like odd jobs here and there, but currently is kind of a low wage laborer in a, in a warehouse. And actually right now, during the era of COVID, he's considered um, uh, an essential worker, and that has its own troubles as well. So when you went to high school, was it the same type of people you grew up with, or was it like totally different? Yeah, it was pretty different, you know, because, you know, you, um, you live in an urban area, and so the diversity is vast. You know, we basically uh, lived in an immigrant community, people who came from all sorts of different diaspora. So throughout even, you know, elementary school and high school, I went to a public high school. And in that high school, um, it was an extremely diverse community, not necessarily descending from the same story at all. There were some, but, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't like a white school or anything like that. Like people came from all over from all over. So being an immigrant was was more of a norm than than anything. And so was higher education always part of the plan, even in high school? Um, for me, yes, actually. Um, so um, I was kind of a rebel <laughs> kind of growing up uh, in the sense that my parents were very, very strict. They were very austere. They were never involved in my education in any way. Like I, I always kind of did my thing. What my parents did expect, though, was um, like excellence. They expected me to do my best. I have a younger brother and they had different expectations from, from him. And the reasoning is kind of like sexist and misogynistic, but their reasoning, well, at least my dad's reasoning was like, you know, as a, as a woman, as a, like a small petite size woman, his reasoning was like, I can't, like, he was like, you can't do labor jobs. You can't do manual labor jobs. Like I can, you know, like I work manual labor because I was never able to go to school. Like, and this is the only opportunity for me, but you can't do that. Like you can't pick up heavy things. Like this is not an avenue for you. So you need to work your ass off essentially, you know, as a woman um, in order to be in a situation where you can be in an office or someplace where you can use your brain, because that's going to be like your ticket to surviving essentially to making a living to, to basically live independently. And when I have a family of my own to be able to support your family. So that was something he stressed to me at a very, very young age that, you know, because of who I am, because of my physical limits, I can't take manual labor jobs. I have to use my brain. And so that was something that they um, infused, I guess, in me um, from from the very beginning. Um, And so I always had higher education. Like I always knew I was going to go to college. I had no freaking idea how I was going to do that because as many people who come from first generation backgrounds, no matter what that background is, you're kind of like doing it alone. Basically, you're like, God, I hope this is right. You're you're just kind of like bumping along and you pray that you have the right advisors. You pray that um, you meet people who believe in you, who can support you in this journey that, you know, no one in your family has embarked before and a journey that your parents have no idea what's going on, but um, you're, you're kind of, I guess, in it yourself. 
Right. So the end goal was there. You just didn't know the, all the steps in between how to get there. Oh and, God, no, I had no idea. What I was doing. <laughs> and was medicine ever part of the plan or was just getting to college kind of the first step for you? Oh, I think college was just the first step. Like I did not have enough foresight to, to think about medicine. I knew mm-hmm. I was, by the time I was in high school, I was definitely into the sciences. So I knew that I had uh, interest in maybe a research career or I think at one point I wanted to be a veterinarian or something. Um, <laughs> but um, I wasn't as, I guess, sophisticated enough to be like, oh, I'm going into medicine. What was your idea of what medicine was or what even a doctor was at that point? In high school? Oh, my God. I actually, you know, at the beginning of high school, I was like, there's no way in heck I can be a doctor. And that's because, you know, my honors biology class, one of the things that made us do pretty early on was like watch this. I swear to I think it was like a documentary or something called The Miracle of Life. And like they showed it, it was like, yeah, it was like a two hour like video where they talked about how reproduction happened, like how the sperm and the egg and kind of the basic science around. I remember falling asleep during that, actually. (laughs) And then there was a more clinical port. Like, I remember there there was more of a clinical portion of that movie where they were following the lives of like med students and like detailing how hard it was to be a doctor. And then they showed how like birth happened, like how women gave birth. Like they showed like, I remember like, I think dozing off and falling asleep and then waking up to like a cry of a baby, like literally coming out of a woman's vagina and just like feeling completely like (laughs) scarred from that experience. But also seeing how hard it was to be a doctor and the journey and the crap that you have to go through. And so I remember like feeling very strongly at that moment. I was like, there's no way in heck I can do this shit. (laughs) Like there's no way. I actually don't know if I'm allowed to curse in a podcast, but you can edit that out. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's totally fine. (laughs) And so, you know, the transition to college for many people is like a tough transition. Mm. I assume a lot of people kind of have that imposter syndrome. Mm. So for you, like, what was it like for you, like that transition? Did you feel totally kind of alone or misunderstood or, you know, what was your kind of process with all that at first? Um, oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. And to this day, I still feel imposter syndrome. Like, let me get that clear. Okay. Let me get that straight. Like to, to this day, you, you very much feel out of place. And like I said, like being the first in your family, you're just like, Oh my God, I hope I don't screw this up. You know, like God, I hope I do this right. And so, you know, I moved away for the first time and just lived with, you know, my college classmates who were, came from very, very diverse backgrounds. Um, and uh, some actually very similar to mine, mm. um, uh, but many absolutely not. And I, I definitely fell out of place being being um, at Yale for sure. I I like I was just like, did they make a mistake? Like this this cannot be it. Like every day, I was kind of pinching myself a little bit, um, feeling like super grateful. But yeah, at the same time, just feeling completely out of place and whether or not I could even handle the rigors of of what they were basically giving to me. And and I think at that point, I was also pre-med too. And so, you know, being pre-med is, I'm sure you know, like it's super hard as well. um, You know, never mind, you know, being in an Ivy League. And so, yeah, everything was just new and kind of overwhelming to me. So when did that interest in medicine start? You know, interestingly enough, I think by the end of my senior year of high school, I decided, you know, I, I thought I, I wanted to be a doctor. 
yeah, I, I, I had an inkling that I wanted to be a doctor. And so when I went into college, I had, I knew I was going to major in the sciences because that's what I was particularly interested in, um, in molecular biology. And then um, I decided to go through the pre-med track. So yeah, kind of around that time, like late, like, like senior of high school, freshman year of college. Right. So kind of towards the end of high school and then college, but you know, I hate to ask it, but everyone is like, why medicine? Like what, what drew you to medicine and like, what were kind of the first steps into that process? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, my background, I think was basically, you know, my background as, as, as coming from like a, like an immigrant family from a low socioeconomic background, like that very much influenced like my, my, what I wanted to do in life essentially. Cause I think coming from that background, it, so basically, I mean, I, I, I'm in medicine for like, for essentially, cause I wanted to be, and I still want to be obviously an advocate for, for people like my parents, for people of low socioeconomic background, for people of color. I went into medicine because I wanted to make a change in terms of health and, and social justice. Um, and I wanted to be a, a leader, essentially. Um, I still want to be a leader <laughs> in terms of uh, working on at in both medicine, but also in the policy level to to kind of enact, enact change on on um, not only on a patient level but also on a population level. And so that that's why I went into medicine. It's just because, you know, growing up, I you know I think very similar backgrounds to um, people who came from. I guess similar who have similar stories. Um, you know, when your parents don't speak English and they're low income, you have very low healthcare access essentially. And so, at a very young age, I had quite a bit of responsibility in terms of helping my parents manage a lot of different things, um, and some of it including, you know, being a child interpreter at their medical visits and booking their appointments, and um, you know, just being their advocate basically um, in those settings as well. And in college, I kind of explored that kind of fire further um, through various activities. And so, yeah, ultimately, now I'm here. <laughs> you brushed up on it a little bit, like the experience your, your parents had with, you know, the healthcare. But can you maybe talk a little bit more about maybe what you experienced and what you saw with your community and your parents? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's basically cumulative experience to this day, you know, that that's still even though I'm like 3000 miles away from my parents, I, I am I still play the same role only virtually now, um, as I did growing up. And so, you know, my experience basically, and I was kind of a patient advocate and kind of like interpreter for my parents, you know, I think for many kind of limited you know, English speakers who come from immigrant backgrounds, they, um, at least for, for my family, there is a, there's kind of a mistrust in, in the medical system, especially for people of color, just based on the history. Um, there's a, a cultural barrier, there's a language barrier, you know, even to this day, like not everyone, like my parents will get a medical interpreter. Um, there's going to be many different things that are going to be missed. There's going to be misunderstandings. My parents, you know, they do have a belief in kind of more traditional medicine as as well, and and so there's there's also that, and and also the cost, right? Like just just like a medical visit requires money, and when you have very little of that, you you need to be able to uh, ration 
and 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 so I remember I mean, my parents was now they're a lot better but definitely growing up my parents were very much like a like we would only go to the doctors if we were like dying essentially just because that was just not something that they were willing to spend money on because they were they were trying to work so those are those were there were some things i know a group can be like very diverse but i think it's it's not safe to say, you know, just because you're like underrepresented, all underrepresented people are going to like understand the struggle. Like we all kind of come from a different background. So mm-hmm. have you seen maybe anything that you learned from your classmates in a diverse population or your classmates are learning from you as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have learned so much from my classmates from, I mean, again, we all come from different backgrounds and I'd like to think I have something to offer to my to my classmates as well, as far as my background and where I came from and some of the stories that I shared with you on, on this, mm-hmm. on this um, podcast. And I hope that's something that um, is helpful for people. But yeah, absolutely. People who came from different immigrant communities, something like yourself, whether it's Latino, whether it's from different Southeast Asian communities, or it's not, you know, the, the Cambodian diaspora is not the same thing as the Vietnamese mm-hmm. diaspora. And even in, within Vietnam, there's different diasporas of people like my parents versus other other communities with, within Vietnam. And so, uh, or people who are from crap, even from different parts of the United States, you know, people who came from like the Midwest or like the South, like, I don't know what your life is. Like, you know, as as someone who was born and raised in Jersey, I have no idea. And I've, I've had a wonderful pleasure from learning from my classmates. I'm also in like the, the University of California, we have things called like the prime programs, which is basically program in medical um, education and, and for, um, with themes in different underserved communities and for AUCSF we are like there's a program called like program in medical education for the urban underserved or prime us and that's a program I'm in um, which is basically kind of the specialized five-year track Um, and there's usually 15 of us per year and so I have even had a a greater privilege of being able to spend more um, more time with a, a group of people who come from completely different backgrounds, but also share this same mission, basically this commitment to serving underserved communities um, as, as broadly defined and, and to uh, uh, basically incorporate working on dismantling basically uh, health inequities in their career. Was there like anything that took you by surprise that you didn't expect so far in medical school? Oh my God, the whole thing. I had no idea what I was going into. Oh my Lord. Um, I thought I did, but I clearly had no idea. <laughs> like this entire experience, like every day, I'm just like, what just happened? It's literally been like that for me every day, you know, whether it's learning or being on the wards, whether, or even as a first year, like I, yeah, like again, like, thing like I have no idea what I'm doing and so I just take it one day at a time um med school has a a different culture and it's a it's a culture with the hidden curriculum that I'm constantly learning day by day and and that to me is is very difficult and how for me as you know a young woman of color it it can be very very difficult to try to find your place Mm. in in medicine um, and trying to also like prove your worth um, as well in medicine. 
so that that to me is kind of like a like a daily struggle and, and kind of alluding back to like just the imposter syndrome of, as well but also like proving to other people that you know you're worth it and and that you can do this and what I probably didn't appreciate, what I knew and probably didn't appreciate is that medicine is still kind of a white man's world. And so working within that system is difficult. I think it's important to hear that, that you sometimes feel like you don't have your place being a woman of color. And I think we sometimes forget that people are struggling in medical school and medicine and some more than others. Yeah. And I, I know I'm not the only one who feels that way, but a lot of times you you almost feel like you're the only one because you look around and you, everyone seems to get it, have it together. And you're like, am I the only shit show in this place? Are you kidding me? Um, and, and you feel like that. You feel like you're a complete shit show and you're just like, oh my God, I'm just trying to stay afloat. So what'd you say to the student who's like, yeah, right, please. Like this, this person like knew they're just going to crush her from the beginning. She went to Yale. She's at UCSF. Like, come on, give me a break. She's only saying that. Like, what would you say to them? Because that happens a lot. Like some people are like, oh yeah, they're just saying that. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not just saying that. Like it's, <laughs> um, and, and you know what? I, I didn't mention this, but like how I even like applied to like Pressbridge and how I started in this journey going to Yale was like kind of random. And, and what I would say to the student is like, you never know what opportunity life's going to give you and, and be prepared for a shit ton of rejections. Just be prepared for that <laughs> as well. Like it's definitely not, it's not easy. There's, there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of tears. Can't tell you how many times I cry. Um, <laughs> can't tell you, you know, how many late nights or all nighters I, I pulled, <laughs> still pull, <laughs> you know, in order to get, you know, it's not, it, there's no way, you know, I can't tell you like, oh yeah, this just happened. There's no way there's, there's a lot of work into it. And there's a crap ton of luck as well. Um, I, I have a very interesting work when I was in high school, you know, I went to a high school with 3000 kids, you know, and 3,000 kids and like what five guidance counselors like only a handful of guidance counselors there's only so much guidance you're getting right like none <laughs> especially if you're the person who is doing well in school like that you're not the person that the guidance counselor is worried about at all you know they're worried about everyone else and for me my school at the time I think the official statistics was like 50% who actually goes to college we had a huge attrition rate at my high school it might be better now but at least I think that was like official for me and I remember going to my guidance counselor office um yeah I've had a good kind of working relationship with her for throughout my four years and I was kind of it was the beginning of my senior year I should be thinking about college and Questbridge has a very early deadline like their deadline for college application is like four months before your regular deadline at the end of December and I remember it was like I think the week before the deadline and um, I went to my guidance counselor, kind of talked to her kind of about my plan. And she was just like, well, are you done with your like Westbridge application? I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's, it's due in a week. I haven't started on it. It's, you know, it's, there were so many, I don't know what the heck my brain was thinking at that time, but I, I, I didn't start on it. I didn't think I was good enough for it. I had all these kind of like negative cognitive distortions, essentially, and a lot of imposter syndrome. And my guidance counselor was like, oh, that's nice. Well, I already wrote you a letter of recommendation, so you better work on your application and send it in. Um, it's like she had already read it. And I was like, so what? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And I was like, oh, oh, crap. She's like, yeah, so you, you know, you, you can do it. Like, you know, just do it. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, okay, great. Now I got like 300 other kids. Like, get out of my office. You know, that's kind of her word. That's what she would always say. Just get out of my office. That was kind of our working relationship. And it was, be- it was because like I had an advocate that I didn't even really know I had um, that kind of led me to uh, basically believe in myself and, and, and just made sure that I didn't disappoint her because she believed in me. That's an awesome uh, counselor because (laughs) I've, uh, I've encountered with a lot of people tell me different stories of counselors, some who aren't helpful at all. Um, Mm -hmm. I've heard some pretty horror stories of counselors just being like, Nope, you're never going to get into med school. Yep. Or you're never going to go into college, which is sad. And I hate to see that. But so you mentioned like the Quest program and some of these other pipeline programs. What do you think could be done better? I know this is a huge question to answer, but for <laughs> maybe underrepresented students. Oh, my God. I, I, <laughs> this is such a huge undertaking. And I feel like there's so many people who are working on it, you know, as mm-hmm. part, you know, in, in prime, what we do and what I do in, in med school is do we you know, I do a lot of outreach programs. I spend a lot of times talking with pre-health students, doing, um, you know, making these programs, bringing them to UCSF and, and trying to reach out to as many people as possible, you know, th- through these partnerships that we have with community programs um, in order to, I mean, hopefully inspire, but to show pre-health students from these underrepresented communities that, yeah, no, like you can do it. Like there are people who, um, come from similar backgrounds who who look like you and you know we are a small but burgeoning community and we want more of you because you know your community needs you essentially and so so I've been doing a lot of that work um, I, I know many of my my classmates have been doing a lot of that work for the pre-health side um, on the med school level like even our med school has been doing a lot of work for that there are different programs for people of color, people from underrepresented backgrounds to give you that extra help and boost for to help you with your clinical skills so that way you can secede on the wars because the war, like, and you'll find this out, like the wars is very much a white man's world. And there's a lot of, unfortunately, kind of acclimation and assimilation and kind of code switching you kind of have to do. And so that that is something that, interestingly enough, UCSF has um that program, my class was the first class that kind of like the first version of, of the program in order to work on your clinical skills, essentially, to help you secede and to inspire you to stay in academics, for example, you know, and, th- and that was started by basically med ed people of color who, who firmly believe that, um, you know, in this, in this mission to help uh, students of color secede in their clerkships and in their residencies as well. You mentioned that you were a part of a pipeline program. And over time, I've come to realize that these pipeline programs are extremely valuable for our youth. It depends on on the pipeline program, but I I think I believe in their mission in terms of Mm -hmm. just uplifting and um, like instilling that belief that people who come from underrepresented backgrounds can can do it and are not worth it. And that, you know, in the medical community, like, I think the thing that I've realized that, I mean, this is kind of a weird generalization to make, but people who come from similar backgrounds like I do, they tend to come in with like a greater mission other than themselves. You know, when I think about like serving 
my community and, 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 and very similar communities. Like I'm always thinking about in a community level, I'm always thinking about uh, like uplifting uh, people from similar backgrounds. And I think that kind of like a, a shared mission that a lot of us, that a lot of us have understanding that like patients need us essentially, like they need to see our faces and they need to see that we're out there. And I can't tell you how many times, like, I, I swear to God, these patients are like sick as hell and they're like in so much pain and I, I can't tell you how many times I've cried because even though they're like in so much pain and they're sick, like a lot of times they will say like they would wish me the best for my education and they hope that, you know, I, I will, um, I like succeed in my goal to be a doctor and they wish me all the best. And, and, and that is something they actually spend their energy and time saying to me, even though, <laughs> you know, they're you know, physically speaking, medically speaking, they're not necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily healthy, you know? And, and so that, like I get so much encouragement from, from my patients, you know, that that's what kind of yeah. keeps me going is that, you know, people look at you and they see you and, and they're just like, we, we need you essentially, you know, we like, they actually will tell you that they're like, wow, we, we need you. We hope for the right. best and, and we hope you continue on this path. And that is just so encouraging when you are going through all this imposter syndrome, you are, you know, you, you will have very, very tough days. You're like, I can't do it. Or it's just medicine so hard or, or, you know, or stupid people like doubting your abilities or making judgments on you. But, you know, you, you, you kind of block all that out and you realize that like, oh, like patients do need us to be there present for them. I'm also realizing too that it's, it's important for me to be like an advocate of people who look like me or from my background. I think even now more than ever. Yeah, and you'll get more of that. Like people will just like feel familiar to you because they're just like, they'll have all this transference towards you, but you know, they'll, you know, there's, there's a comfort in seeing a provider who looks like you essentially. And I, yeah, and there's a comfort in that. Generally, in in this kind of like white world, like white people have never th- had to think about that, right? Because, you know, there's so many people in, in places of power and privilege who look like them. They always have role models. There's there's like there's there's a wealth of role models and there's not of of us. And so it, it's it's so important to um, to to be a role mo- model for others. I don't want to take any more of your time. Um, so I thank you for your time. I thank you for sharing. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Thank you for hearing my ramble. So I'm, so, no, <laughs> I'm no, sorry no, if I like didn't make sense at one point. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been, I've been up for too many hours. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Behind the White Coat. I would like to thank David DeRoche for his guidance and the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio for their support. Please make sure you subscribe either on iTunes or Spotify so you can get notified when the next episode is released. Thank you for your time and I hope you enjoyed this episode.